Hello, this is Mike, and welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Mythology. So on this episode, we are visiting jolly old London at the beginning of the Victorian age. This was a rapid period of change and growth in London. It was during this era when the cramped, squalid city would become an even more cramped, squalid city. Rapid industrialization was taking place. The Thames was flowing with all kinds of different wastes. Factories were being built which was producing thousands of low-paying dangerous jobs and the population was booming. At this time London was the largest urban environment in the world and it is out of this urban environment where we hear two stories which would go on to become the world's first quote urban legends end quote. And out of these legends two iconic figures would emerge the infamous Spring-Heeled Jack and the legendary demon barber of Fleet Street, Sweeney Todd. So before we get into those epic stories, I am going to take a drink of this delicious Voodoo Ranger Juice Force IPA. It's 9.5% alcohol and it gets me in the perfect mood to do these episodes. And let's start where we always do, right at the beginning. So first, some historical context. So London, 1837. It is a squalid center of trade which is attracting anyone and everyone who were seeking out new opportunities in these new factories which were going up every day. And these people came from all walks of life. And if human history has taught us anything, it's that anytime you get a mass migration of people from the countryside to a industrialized city, certain things happen. For one, you have an influx of many different cultures which will bring their own beliefs with them. And a lot of people from these cultures are probably superstitious to some degree or they have their own folk tales. Secondly, what happens, and we see this all over the world and we saw this in London during the Victorian age, the cost of labor actually goes down. And there are a number of factors which play into this, industrialization being one of them, skilled labor becoming unskilled, and a massive never-ending support supply of workers who you could just easily replace and that creates a widespread working class and a widespread underclass and generally from that these city centers they become a little more dangerous and it's in this dangerous industrialized overpopulated dirty squalid environment which we come across our first character the infamous Springheel Jack now Springheel Jack he was described by people who claimed to have seen him as having a terrifying and frightful appearance. He had clawed hands and eyes that resembled red balls of fire. He was able to leap over 10 foot high walls. He could breathe fire. And those claws he had were actually very sharp metallic fingertips which he would use to shred the clothing of the women he would attack. So it all starts in October of 1837. A girl by the name of Mary Stevens was walking to Lavender Hill where she was working as a servant. 
So while she was walking through Clapham Common, a strange figure leapt at her from a dark alley and immobilized her by grabbing her. He essentially pinned her and was forcibly kissing her while shredding her clothes with these clawed fingertips. So in a panic, she naturally screamed and this scream caused the attacker to flee. And the screams ended up attracting several local residents who quickly started a search for this aggressor but he could not be found, he had disappeared into the dark, foggy London night. The very next day, he did this to another woman who lived very near Mary Stevens' home, and during his escape this time, he actually leapt in front of a passing carriage, causing the coachman to lose control and crash. And several witnesses to this event said that he escaped by leaping over a nine-foot-high wall while cackling with a high-pitched ringing laughter. And this is how he got his name. The ability to leap over a nine-foot wall indicated that he may have had springs in his shoes which allowed him to do it. Either that or he was a very early adopter of parkour. After this, five more women were reportedly attacked. However, since they were mostly all working class victims, they didn't get a lot of coverage in the press at the time. Generally, nobody really cared. Generally, the idea at the time being that, hey, London's dangerous enough, let's not incite the citizens with stories of this crazed psychopath who's going around attacking women with metallic claws on his fingertips. However, it was actually on January 9th when the Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, actually revealed that he had received an anonymous complaint about these attacks. Now, initially, the Mayor of London, he was kind of skeptical of these stories of this ghost or demon or guy who could leap over 10-foot walls attacking the women of London, but his skepticism seemed to change as more reports and letters and reports of attacks came pouring in in the subsequent months. Now there were rumors flying around that this was some kind of demon or some kind of ghost, but the more skeptical-minded surmised that this was some wicked prankster, possibly someone from the upper classes going out and committing these acts. And it may sound odd today that it's just some guy performing wicked pranks. And it wasn't that they were unaware that these attacks were doing harm, physical and mental harm to these women. But we have to remember at the time that these attacks and assaults weren't treated as criminal acts as they are today. And because of that, this lunatic was allowed to prowl the city of London terrorizing young women, which he would do again and again. The most famous cases or incidents involving Spring-Heeled Jack came in 1838 that involved two teenage girls, one named Lucy Scales and another named Jane Alsop, and these were widely covered in the newspapers. So in the case of Jane Alsop, she reported that on the night of February 19th, 1838, she answered the door of her father's house to a man claiming to be a police officer. The police officer tells her to bring a light, claiming that we have caught Spring-Heeled Jack here in the lane. She brought the person a candle and noticed that he wore a large cloak. In the moment she handed him the candle, he threw off the cloak and, quote, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance 
vomiting blue and white flames from his mouth while his eyes resembled red balls of fire. She went on to report that he also wore a very large helmet and that his clothing, which appeared to be very tight-fitting, resembled white oil skin. Without saying a word, he grabbed her and began tearing at her gown with his claws, which she was certain were made of some kind of metallic substance. She then screamed for help and managed to get away from him, and as she ran towards her house, he caught her on the steps and tore at her neck and arms with his claws. Now one of her sisters had heard her out there screaming and had come out to help her and when she had gotten out there the man was seen fleeing into the darkness. And then nine days later on February 28, 1838, 18 year old Lucy Scales and her sister were returning home after visiting their brother who was a butcher who lived in a respectable part of Limehouse. Now Miss Scales stated in her deposition to the police that as she and her sister were passing along Green Dragon Alley they observed a person standing in an angle of the passage. So she was walking in front of her sister towards this guy and when she got near him she noticed that he was wearing a large dark cloak and a large helmet. And as she approached he purportedly spat a blue and white flame into her face causing her to temporarily lose her sight. This attack alarmed her so badly that she instantly dropped to the ground and started seizing with violent fits that lasted for the next several hours. Now while this is happening not far from her brother's house, he hears his other sister screaming very loudly and he comes out to help. And he says that as he approached Green Dragon Alley, he found his sister Lucy on the ground in a fit with his other sister attempting to hold her and support her. They then took her back to his home where the other sister recounted the story of what happened. She described the assailant as being a tall, thin man and gentlemanly appearance covered in a large cloak and carrying a small lamp or bullseye lantern similar to those used by the police. Now she went on to say that this individual did not speak nor did he try to lay hands on them, however he just walked away kind of briskly. And despite every effort of the police, who at the time in London they were still kind of in their infancy, they were never able to ascertain who this attacker was. However, there was this rumor going around that it was most likely somebody from the upper echelons of society. And they were probably doing it in order to garner some kind of a thrill. Now after these two attacks, Springheel Jack becomes one of the most popular urban legends in London. The media just has a field day with the story. Exploits were reported in newspapers and several of the penny dreadfuls and plays performed in the cheap theaters at the time. And in a weird twist, he becomes somewhat of a local hero. And for the next several, quote, decades, appearances of Spring-Heeled Jack would show up all over southern England. It was said that he robbed coaches in East Anglia, and he shows up in Northamptonshire, and the last reported sighting of him is as late as 1904. Now to be honest, with this story being widespread in popular culture, I imagine there are a lot of copycats out there. However, let's focus on the real facts of this case. Obviously, there was someone in the late 1830s stalking the streets of London attacking young working-class women. And from the earliest attacks, it's suggested that he is possibly someone who is high-born or of the aristocracy. Not only that, he's usually very well-dressed, young, and athletic. And we can see from the evidence that this guy is 
obviously intelligent. He's planning these attacks. He's dressing in this very specific way in order to plan out these attacks. He at one point impersonates a police officer and he obviously understands the superstitions of the era. So the dude knows how to do the trick known as fire eating or fire breathing. A lot of performers know how to do this trick. It's not that hard to learn if you're willing to practice it. And this would have been a common trick you would have seen at the time being performed in theaters, on stage shows, probably in freak shows, whatever. And the guy obviously knows that if he does this, it's going to make it seem more mysterious. When the witness or victim says that the man breathed fire, it makes her a less credible witness. It makes people wonder, is she delusional? Is she superstitious? So right there from just that, we have an intelligent, possibly high-born, well-rounded guy who understands the art of superstition and the art of theater going out and committing these violent attacks across London. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, why? What's the motivation? Why was he doing this? Was he some sick, deranged lunatic? Possibly. It could have been a way for him to get his rocks off. He could have also have been doing it for the adrenaline rush or the thrill, but like, who is he? Sad thing is, we'll never know. Now there is one theory out there that suggests that this possibly could be the guy, and I'll go to that now. Now, the Lord Mayor, when he kind of broke this story to the public, he accused a group of young aristocratic boys who were basically daring each other or betting each other to do this. And out of that kind of accusation, a rumor started circulating as early as 1840, and it pointed to an Irish nobleman, the Marquis of Waterford, as the main suspect. So we're probably asking ourselves right now, who the hell was the Marquis of Waterford in 1840? Well, that was a guy named Henry de la Poyer Bursford, because apparently no no matter what culture I am talking about, I always run into a stupid, hard-to-pronounce name. So Old Henry, he's the third Marquis of Waterford. So the Marquis, he was actually frequently in the news in the late 1830s for drunken brawling, brutal jokes, and vandalism. He was said to do anything for a bet, and he had this irregular contempt for women. His outrageous behavior actually granted him the nickname the Mad Marquis, and he was in and around London during these first attacks. And it was said that he would amuse himself in his youth by springing upon unaware travelers in order to frighten them, and that over time others would follow his quote silly example. However, it's said that in 1842 the Marquis married and settled in Curramore House in County Waterford and reportedly led an exemplary life until he died in a rioting accident in 1859. So was he Springhill Jack? Maybe, but personally I don't think so. Because with the stories surrounding him with the mentions of like drunken brawling and telling lewd jokes and stuff, there doesn't really seem to be anything mentioning fire eating or having customized metallic claws on his fingertips and it doesn't seem like he was actually ever really violent 
violent towards anyone aside from the drunken brawling. Now, a lot of investigators and sociologists think that it was just mass hysteria. There was this rumor going around that a girl got attacked, and then this rumor picked up, and it created this, like, feedback loop. Then the newspapers will get a hold of it, and it exacerbates it, and throws it into urban legend. And that's all well and said, but let's not forget that before this mass hysteria got out, there were, like, five women who were attacked by this guy. These attacks were real, and the perpetrator was never caught or captured. Hell, he was never even accused because we don't know who he was. If I were to speculate, I would think that it was probably an aristocratic young man, maybe 18 to early 20s. Someone who's intelligent, someone who understands theater and the art of manipulation. Someone who knows how to take advantage of the superstitious working class who are arriving in London at the time. Somebody who had a contempt for this new working class, especially the women of this new working class. Maybe he was somebody who was frequently rejected by women and he decided to take that frustration out on these women, knowing that they're from the working class and that those stories would just disappear. And maybe in order to cover his tracks, he would do this outlandish stuff that would sound insane to any police officer who was listening to these reports. Or maybe he was just some guy doing it for the thrill of it all. Maybe this was the only way he could really, you know, get his rocks off. Because let's not forget that first attack did seem to be somewhat possibly sexually motivated. But yeah, that's all I really have on Spring-Heeled Jack personally. I think that it was an actual guy who was out there committing crimes against women who ended up in local urban legend. And to be honest, even though I love urban legends, I don't really love this one. It feels more like a true crime mystery that got discounted and mixed up with urban folklore, and that's kind of a shame. But it is widely regarded as the first true urban legend, and that's why it exists and why I'm even doing this show today. So our second London character who arrives in the realm of urban legend is the infamous Sweeney Todd. Now, a lot of people debate whether or not he actually existed, but as we know, stories do come from somewhere. There's always some kind of inspiration, and this is that story. So for this story, we have to travel to 1785 down on Fleet Street. So down on Old Fleet Street, there's a barber shop, and it sits right next to St. Dunstan's Church. And it's also connected to a pie shop in nearby Bell Yard via an underground passage. This becomes very important later in the story. So, in this area in London in 1785, a strange disappearance occurs of a sailor named Lieutenant Thornhill. He was last seen entering Sweeney's barbershop. So, Thornhill was actually in the possession of a gift of a string of pearls to a girl named Johanna Oakley on behalf of her missing lover, a man named Mark, who was presumably lost at sea. Now, one of Thornhill's friends, uh, Colonel Jeffrey, he's alerted to the disappearance of Thornhill, and he kind of investigates his whereabouts, and he's eventually joined by Johanna, who wants to know what happened to her lover Mark. So they summarize that the last place he was seen was at this barber shop. So she actually disguises herself as a boy and decides to become his employee after his last assistant, a young boy named Tobias Rag, had been incarcerated in a madhouse for accusing Todd of being a murderer. Which this turns out to be true because Todd is a madman. He is a serial killer. He has this specialized barber chair in which he can pull a 
lever and flip the person down head first into the cellar causing him to crack his skull or break his neck and it's said that if he doesn't initially kill them during that fall he goes downstairs and finishes off the victim by slitting his throat with his trusty straight razor after which he robs them of any valuables dismembers the corpse and he sends the meat via a secret passage to the nearby pie shop owned by a Mrs. Lovett. She then creates her famously delicious meat pies from the leftover flesh. Now while the bodies are burning in the oven at some point the nearby citizens start to notice this ghastly and intolerable smell and they bring in someone to investigate just what that smell is and it is through this investigation when Todd's activities are uncovered when the dismembered remains of hundreds of his victims are discovered in the crypt beneath the church. But it is also through this investigation they figure out what happened to Mark. He wasn't actually lost at sea, as presumed. He was actually kidnapped by Lovett and Todd and imprisoned in the cellar of the shop and forced to work as the cook. And it is after Mark is freed he makes the announcement Ladies and gentlemen, I fear that what I am going to say will spoil your appetites, but the truth is beautiful at times, and I have to state that Mrs. Lovett's pies are made of human flesh. Upon these revelations, Lovett and Todd try to escape, however they don't get far. In the end, he actually poisons her before he is captured, and he is subsequently hanged for his crimes. Now, if that sounds like a story that was lifted right out of a book, you're right. That story actually comes from The String of Pearls, A Romance, which was published in 18 parts in Edward Lloyd's The People's Periodical and Family Library from 21 November 1846 to 20 March 1847, and in 1850 an expanded version of it was created. And this book would mark the first literary appearance of Sweeney Todd. Now while nobody knows who actually wrote that first story, it was submitted anonymously. It's believed that the original story is actually from an older legend, which is possibly the oldest reference of this story in its modern form. It was found in the diary of a Swedish traveler named Per Leinström, and it dates to about the middle of the 17th century, so 1600s for you kids at the back of the class. Now, this story is actually set in Calais, which is where the author had heard the story, and it includes all the details of the legend except for the name of the characters. So this story was being told as far back as the middle of the 1600s, and therefore it even suggests that the tale is older than that, probably dating all the way back to the medieval period for all we know. Now given the fact that the main character was a barber, it's actually very important because the modern day barber that we think about it didn't really exist until fairly recently, because up in until this age and even during this age for the most part your barber was also your dentist and was also allowed to participate in minor surgeries hence the barber surgeons. Now they were less respected than doctors or formally trained surgeons who came from London, Edinburgh, places like that but they were still your general better than nothing choice if you had nowhere else to go. So the general thought that a barber surgeon would be able to have some rudimentary knowledge of anatomy and be able to dis 
dismember a corpse is outside of the realm of possibility. And the fact that the pies were meat pies is really another thing that makes this story just be retold over and over again. And hell, we even tell a version of this story today when it comes to processed meats. It's that old story that things like hot dogs or spam or bologna or sausages are made from all the waste products and ground up rats and dogs and whatever fell into the meat grinder. And that modern version of the story actually comes from the book The Jungle, which was written in the early 1900s about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. There's always these prevailing myths that when we eat our meats, especially our processed meats, that, you know, the guy's finger got cut off and then it ended up being ground up in the process. And it all kind of circles back around to this idea that you don't really know what you're eating sometimes. Another story that we see this idea in comes from Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers from 1836 to 1837. The servant Sam Weller says that a pie man used cats for beefsteak, veal, and kidney pies according to the demand and recommends that people should buy pies only when you know the lady has made it and is quite sure it ain't kitten. And there are kind of countless other literary references to this. But was Sweeney Todd a real person? Well, most contemporaries will say no, he's an urban legend. Or to put it in another way, he's kind of the boogeyman figure that comes up when those urban legends surrounding what's really in our food kind of arise. However, there are some people, very few people, who do believe that he was a real historical figure who did commit these crimes around the early 1800s. However, no evidence has ever come to the surface to suggest that was true. However, his story does carry on in several adaptions, mostly plays, musicals, that Johnny Depp film from 2007, it was pretty awesome, and more plays and musicals. So was he a real historical figure? Probably not. But have there been historical instances of, I guess, accidental cannibalism or cannibalism in the namesake of marketing? That answer is a little bit more fuzzy, but I can allude to an actual serial killer in Canada who owned a pork farm or a series of pork farms, I don't remember. But but he allegedly murdered a bunch of prostitutes and not only cannibalized them, but it is thought that since he was using the same facilities to process the corpses of the women that he used to actually butcher his hogs, that some of that meat ended up in Canadian supermarkets. This was in the 80s and 90s, and if you want to hear more of that, I do have kind of a after show type thing planned. It's going to be exclusive to only a few members who want to actually hear about it so reach out to me if you do but it will be released in between that little three-week hiatus in between seasons and that will come up in February but yeah that's all I really have for this episode and these subjects today once again I do thank you guys for listening and all I ask is if you did enjoy it just share it with a friend word of mouth is truly how this show grows and reaches all the crazy parts of the world that I never thought it would reach. Like a few weeks ago, I saw that I had listeners in Mauritius or Moratorius. It's this little island nation off the east coast of Africa. And that just blew my mind because to be honest, I didn't even know that was a nation. I had to actually look that one up on Wikipedia because I had never heard of it. But it is all through your guys' word of mouth and feel free to share my links. I share my links every day, so feel free to copy paste that and share it with whoever you want. 
want. That's really how this show grows. But with that out of the way, once again, I thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.